0: Hey, got a fresh new episode of Pangaea coming right up. But first, I wanted to let you know that Pangaea is now on Facebook. um, And it's, you know, a good way to get reminders about the show. But I'll also be curating sort of the best of global and social content over there. Um, Lots of experimental stuff and uh, interesting stuff, I hope. Uh, So check it out, facebook.com slash Pangea show. That's Pangea, P-A-N-G-E-A. Otherwise, if you definitely never want to miss an episode, sign up for the emails. It's on the website, watchpangea.com. But next up, uh, an interview with Alana Sheikh. I should say an interview with the interesting and... um, smart and accomplished Alana Shake. Um Just kind of picking her brain, um, asking her lots of different things about uh, online activity, products she makes, global health, all over the place. I hope you like it. And feel free to drop me a line with some feedback or ideas for the show anytime. Um, there's a contact form on the website or um, tweet me anytime at j underscore shiff. Um, Enjoy your day and enjoy this episode. This is Pangaea. I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff. And um, on the line, uh, the Skype line, that is, I've got uh, Alana Shaikh, uh, international development professional, global health blogger and writer. Uh, founder of the Humanitarian Social Network AidSource and TED Fellow. I think that covers pretty much everything. Is that right, Alana? That's pretty much it. <laughs> um, well, so thanks, thanks again for making the time for this. And, um, I included a lot of the, you know, sort of big things that you're involved with, um, online, some of the offline stuff. But what is one thing, uh, that you know, people who follow you online might not know about you?
1: That's a good question. <laughs> I guess uh, one thing that people who follow me online might not know about me, you know, ever since I uh, put up that TED video where I talked about Alzheimer's disease, I kind of feel like everybody knows everything about me. Um, sh-
0: yeah, no, because that was, I think, a different dimension. And actually, in, in researching this, I watched that and... Uh, it was, it was really powerful. What was what was the response to that video like, um, or even just the, the presentation?
1: You know, it, it was really exciting, and the talk was at the, the very beginning of the conference. It was actually at TED University, which is when they invite participants to speak.
0: So I wasn't one
1: of the big-name speakers that they flew in or anything. I was someone who was already attending the conference, and I pitched this speech, and I accepted it. And so it, it was very early in the conference, and it meant that everybody knew me the whole conference, and it was very easy to have conversations with people and meet people because they remembered me. You know, you're the one who gave the Alzheimer's talk. On the other hand, as I said to one of the other speakers, the downside is everybody I talked to talked to me about like illness and dementia and death. So I had a lot of really serious conversations with
0: Ted. Interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, you know, I read your blog and I noticed that you recently relocated to um, Azerbaijan. And wanted to ask, you know, how that transition has been going and your initial impressions of, um, I I think you're in Baku, right?
1: I am in Baku. I've been here about 10 days, so my impressions are very initial. But so far, I really like Baku, and I'm finding Azerbaijan really, really interesting. This country has this very, very interesting history, where, you know, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Before that, it was part of ancient Persian empires. It was briefly independent. The Russians grabbed it. Like, this country has all these sort of different influences that have come together in one little place. And it really shows. Like, if you walked around modern Baku, you'd have a real sense of all these historical factors. So, so far, I'm loving it.
0: How do you anticipate it differ from uh, your experience in you in uh, uh, Tajikistan?
1: I've actually spent sort of the last decade on and off in Central Asia. And Azerbaijan is not the same. On the one hand, you know, when the Soviets said one model, they meant it. So when you travel within the Soviet Union, there are things that are going to be the same. And I'll admit, after 10 years, that's sort of reassuring. Mm. But on the other hand, there's a very different spirit here, a different sense of things. And of course, you know, Baku has, well, Baku, Azerbaijan has a lot of money. Azerbaijan has oil money. Mm. Which means that to some degree when you're working in very poor countries, no matter how much capacity the government has, if they've got $37 annually per capita to spend on health care, there's not much they can do. Whereas here, if you work with the government and they build their capacity, they can do really amazing things on their own budget. They're not donor-dependent.
0: Wow. So, yeah, it sounds like there's a, a lot of opportunity. You sound excited um, about the time that you're going to spend there. I am excited. Great. Well well best of luck with that. Um so I wanted to also ask you about uh your international development careers list. Um and recently on your blog uh you did a post where you responded to a question um about why you charge uh for that advice. Um and uh, I guess you basically say that charging helps people realize um that your your time is valuable. And I, I thought it was it was great that you responded to that publicly. As I was reading, I was thinking, you know, does $2 really help create the perception that your time is valuable? You know, just generally, how did you come up with that amount? I wanted to make
1: sure that it wasn't a barrier financially. I didn't want anyone to need to sacrifice to pay for it. I didn't want it to be a lot of money. Basically, I just wanted it to be a little bit of hassle. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be serious enough that they had to go and sign up. I could have done almost a free sign-up for nearly the same effect. But I decided that $2 a month was sort of a good level to make people stop and think if this was something that they really needed. I think part of what it is is that people think that it's really easy to just quickly answer an email. But if you want to give a good answer, it's not quick and easy.
0: Right, right. And uh, so I'm curious how uh, that, you know, that list has been going. Um, you know, one one of the reasons I think you're an appealing online personality is like, you really embrace this sort of 21st century career model, you're not just doing one thing, you know, you're an aid worker, who also writes, who also creates, you know, products such as the International Development Career List. Um Which of those products, um, you know, has been, I guess, most profitable, uh, for you and if you're comfortable, you know, would you, would you kind of share sort of ballpark how much you make, um, from the most profitable one?
1: None of it really makes any money to tell you the truth. I mean, that's like beer money. That's not (laughs) substantial money. And, uh. Generally, I use it as a charitable donation. Uh, sometimes I use it to buy things on Amazon, depending on the month. But it, it's not—it's not—it's not quite not, it's not your job money. It's not even part-time job money.
0: Is that? Do you think that's because there isn't a market for this this type of um, this type of thing online? You know, in the sort of international development space, or why do you think you haven't sort of made more from it? Well, for one thing, I
1: don't market it at all.
0: Mm-hmm. People really only find out about the
1: careers list if they read about it on my blog or if someone they know tells them about it. And I I don't really like marketing, so I don't do it. And it's not a big priority to me that the list is gigantic or takes over the world and makes a lot of money. I just want it to be useful. And honestly, if it goes over a certain number of members, I will not have time to answer all the questions. So to some degree, I sort of like it small. And so I haven't really made a lot of effort to grow the membership. I mean, I think the demand is definitely there. Service I use, literally, for the list, um, I'm the only list that's really over, like, 100 members. Like, I'm the only person who can get people to pay for content. So, beyond just international development, this isn't the sort of thing people want to pay to sign up for.
0: Interesting. That's that's good to know. In terms of that list, specifically, what's a recurring theme or question that you keep seeing over and over again? What's the type of thing you're kind of sick of answering that people keep asking?
1: I wouldn't say sick of answering, but there's about three, one of which is how do I turn a volunteer position or an unpaid internship into a real job? And then the second one is how do I get field experience if I don't have field experience? And then third one, for some reason, is always, I work domestically in the U.S. with refugees and I want to switch to working internationally. How do I do that?
0: Interesting. So, what uh, I guess for that first question, uh, you know, how do you turn a volunteer opportunity um, into into a paid job? What's uh, what's what's the best tip you have for that?
1: Unfortunately, I think people find this depressing, but it's obvious. Because first of all, be really good at it. Mm-hmm. Be really really good at it, so people notice that you're really good at it, and they want you to work with them because they know it'll be useful. Make sure that people know who you are say hello to people, get to know your colleagues, go to all the meetings, go to all the events so that people actually know your name if they're looking for someone to hire. So basically do a great job and put yourself out there so they know who that person doing a great job is. But that's not the advice people really want.
0: (laughs) What what do you think people want to hear? I think they're hoping there's a trick or there's a secret
1: or if there's, you know, learn the right vocabulary or something will be the answer, but it isn't really.
0: Right. There's, there's no magic bullet, but I guess everyone's kind of looking for that. A- another thing I came across when um, you know I was doing a bit of research for our conversation is uh, an interview you did on a, a humanitarian aid work site. And you said, you know, not a lot of people get to live the lives they've dreamed as a kid, um, but I'm one of them. Do you still feel that way?
1: Yeah, I've wanted to do this work for honestly as long as I can remember. And here I am doing it. I mean, it isn't... I think when I was a kid, I thought I'd be, you know, out there handing out free food to refugees and refugee camps or something. I think I pictured myself as a little more of a a knight in shining armor, and grown-ups realize that's not exactly how it works. Mm -hmm. But certainly sort of the arc of my career and getting to have work that has meaning and work that's international and feeling like I'm part of making the world a better place. Yeah, I get to do that.
0: And where do you see... Uh, you know, your career going in the next 10 years, I guess. What, uh, you know, what's, what's the ideal path?
1: You know, people always ask me that in job interviews and I never have an answer. Because (laughs) really, almost every time I tried to make a plan like that, something slipped around on me. And you know, I got in this unexpected direction and loved it. So I hope that in 10 years, it's the same as now. I hope that I have work that has meaning for me. I hope that I'm doing something I care about. I hope that I'm still earning a salary that I can help support my family with. Yeah, that's really it. I don't have some big dream about I want to be working for this organization or have this involved title. As long as it's work I like, I'll be perfectly happy.
0: Sure. And and do you um do you still want to uh, continue working outside the U.S. or do you ultimately hope that you know your work brings you back to the U.S.? No, I'm
1: I'm very happy living internationally. I don't have any particular desire to relocate back to the U.S.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Another thing uh, that I came across. Um, you know, while I was looking around is, uh, you know, you've talked a, a little about juggling a two-career family and how that's a challenge, how your husband has left two jobs uh, because of career choices you've made. Uh, I, I was particularly interested in this because I, I find it comes up a lot with me and my husband. That's definitely a place we're at. You know, we're both, I think, very professionally focused and uh, it's sometimes hard to choose, you know, whose opportunity do we we pursue? How do you make that decision on, you know, which opportunity to take at which time um, so that you can both pursue your professional goals?
1: I mean, kind of abstractly, we take turns. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband lost some jobs to follow me. I left a job to follow him when he went back to the States to go to grad school. And then out of grad school, he had this great opportunity, so we followed that. So to some degree, You know, abstractly, you're taking turns, but in practice, you're sort of evaluating each opportunity that comes and deciding what's best for the family. Like, I think the key is to think of yourselves or your family, since we have kids, as a unit, and to make decisions that are best for the unit. And then I think the other thing to remember is that it is, in the long run, going to mean your career is a little less bright and shiny than it would have been otherwise. You're not going to move as high up whatever ladder you're trying to climb if all the decisions aren't made just because of you. Like, I'm sure that a man with a stay-at-home wife or a woman with a stay-at-home husband could make every decision for their career and never have to compromise. And they would, you know, get a fancy title or one extra raise or something. And when you're doing it as a unit, it doesn't work that way for you.
0: Right, right. Did you did you happen to read that, um, the Atlantic article on, you know, Um, having it all and Marie Slaughter?
1: No, I didn't. Um, I don't tend to read stuff like that because I think that the media likes to trump up a lot of the work-life decisions that people make. And I don't think it's particularly helpful for me personally anyway to read and engage on articles that are just sort of inflammatory. But i just sort of devoted to getting people excited and upset. I mean, I suspect that Marie Slaughter is right, uh-huh. but that doesn't mean I want to read the article. And I mean, I think I'm nothing. She's a woman I have a lot of respect for and for her career.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, interesting. Well, yeah, I think what was interesting about her piece is, you know, that was, it was um, a lot of personal reflection and uh, sort of why she's come to make uh, some of the decisions in her life. But so is there any, um, you know, is there anything you tend to read on work life balance or anyone you tend to look to as a model? Or is it just something that, you know, you feel out for yourself as you go along?
1: I tend to feel it out for myself as I go along. Because, I think that these choices are in many ways intensely personal and you need to make them Mm -hmm. personally. And I am someone who tends to overthink these, overthink things, Mm -hmm. and I do well when I don't engage too much in researching what other people think too about personal things like that. All of that being said, I think every woman's personal choices do add up to broader social currents and politics. Mm -hmm. And so it's also important to remember that your personal choices do add up to something. And then my last feeling on this is, you know, it's such a privileged discussion to have. I mean, it's such an incredibly privileged discussion to have. I mean, I've met women all over the world who would love to have a job so they could bring some money home and actually feed their children. And they're not sitting around wondering about whether it's better to stay home with their kids or go out in the working world or how to have it all. They're wondering, you know, how to find what they need so that everybody can have some dinner. And to some degree, all of this discussion on the very highest levels about how people who live comfortable lives should get to have the exact comfortable lives they want. It doesn't impress me that much.
0: Sure. Well, and I guess that's why, you know, you uh, choose the type of work that you're in, uh, y- you know, to, to be able to have discussions and, uh, you know, take actions that, you know, feel more meaningful. I mean, I like
1: the sense that I can do something about it. I think that's sort of the core of my career is that mm-hmm. when I look at the world, I need to feel like I can do something about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to move more to some other stuff you do professionally, you know, some of your online writing. You blog, you've written longer pieces and op-eds uh, for places like Foreign Policy Magazine and others, and you've published an ebook book as well. Uh, what type of writing do you, you know, personally find most satisfying? Um, or, or I guess I wonder, is there a specific piece uh, that you've written that you, is most memorable?
1: Well, you know, I love blogging, I love the form, and I love the interactiveness of it. And I've loved being able to work with you on Dispatch because I've been very comfortable letting me pick my topics and explore my interests.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you look back about three years ago, I spent enormous amounts of time writing about potential nuclear programs in Myanmar. And, you know, now I'm not quite sure why that was such interest to me, but at the time had Dispatch just let me roll with it as long as it was well written and well sourced. <laughs> And I like that sort of, you know, 500 to 1,000 word format that's comfortable for me. Sure. And if you look at my ebook, book um, which is a TED book, they like me to mention that whenever I talk about it. The a TED book, all the individual chapters are actually about 1,000 words long because that's the, the structure I like. Sure. And then the Latin formwork at foreign policy and so on. You know, actually, I really like that, too. So I guess I sound like I, like I like everything. I'm trying to think, you know what I don't like? I don't like trying to be an actual journalist. I don't think of myself as a journalist, and I'm not someone who can go out there and like research and write an article, and I'm totally in awe of the people who can. Hmm. I'm not a person who can sit around picking holes in someone else's article. I'm not someone who's capable of generating that kind of content, and I know because I've tried. Interesting. I have a couple of things that you don't know about because they didn't work out because nothing I wrote ever saw the light of day. It's just not my skill set. Ah.
0: So, I guess. So, what's the difference between the type of writing you do and a, the type of writing a journalism does? A, a journalist does. Excuse me.
1: I mean, I guess to me, a journalist goes out there and actually finds out what's going on and writes about it. Mm-hmm. Like they gather information and present it to people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, they use primary sources. They talk to the person who was involved in the riot. They go to the place the riot happened. They were standing there and watched the riot, whatever it is. Whereas I'm the person who reads like 15 different articles about the riot and
0: then tries to figure out why it happened. Uh, but I mean, in some sense, you're providing that information, you know, when you provide that, uh, you know, your idea on, or your read of the situation, you're providing, you know, new information to people. So, you and know, I, th- I guess true. I find it, I find it interesting because there are all these discussions of who's a journalist these days. And so, it's interesting to hear from someone who's uh, written for some some very journalistic publications. Um, you know that that you do draw the line somewhere.
1: I mean, I have so much respect for journalists, just so tremendous amounts of respect. And I have some friends and colleagues who are journalists, and I could never do what they do. And also, you know, journalists study and they learn about what they do. And you know, I just sort of fell into this. My degree is in public health. Uh, my undergraduate at UN Dispatch. Has actual journalistic training and every so often they'll have to come back and their mommy like, Alana, you can't use this quote unless you go back to the person it was quoted about and check with them. You know, you, you have to give people an opportunity to balance that. And, you know, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, no, and Mark, Mark is, um, is a really good guide with stuff like that. Um, do, do you enjoy learning yeah. about the journalistic process? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, you know, talking about journalists you admire and stuff like that, something I'm really interested in, and I've totally ripped this off from the Atlantic Wire. I don't know if that's uh, something you read much of, but they have a great uh, feature called uh, Media Diet where they ask different people, you know, what they read. There's so many sources of information these days. So who are some of the people you like to read? Um, what are What are some of the information sources that you sort of can't live without?
1: First of all, I have a really closely curated list of people I follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And if they post something, I'm genuinely interested in reading it. And so I like to dip into my Twitter every day and see what the people I follow on Twitter are talking about. And I've chosen the people deliberate to be, deliberately to not be all international development people, but to be a whole range of people in different fields and careers so I see different stuff. So that's one source. Um, I actually pay for the New York Times. I paid to subscribe because I do try to support journalism with my dollars when I can. I read pretty much all of the major international development blogs. Um, I read Chris Blattman. I read A View from the Cave. I read Duncan Green. Uh, oh, I love the Humanosphere blog. That is probably my favorite blog out there from oh, Tom Paulson.
0: That's awesome. That's, that's great to know. I know that Tom will appreciate that. Uh, well, and so I'm curious the people on Twitter who are outside of international development, what type of what areas uh, do they tend to be in?
1: I mean, some of it is obvious, like I like to read tech people and design people because that tends to relate to what we see in terms of trying to find new solutions for complicated problems. Mm-hmm. I read medical people because again, it bumps into my field of public health. But then I read, you know, other stuff. I've got a couple of marketers that I follow and people who work in advertising and, oh, a uh, novelist and just all sorts of stuff.
0: And now, a, a totally different question, but something that, I guess, um, wondering where your thinking is on this, what do you consider the most significant issue in global health at the moment? Um, you know, I guess if we have to think about it, what's what's not getting the attention it deserves?
1: You know, I don't want to be a pain in your interview, but I hate that question, and I never have a good answer. I, mean, I don't know how to quantify what is attention that something deserves. I mean, the two things that I worry about, and other people never seem to be worrying as much as I am, is, first of all, I worry about antibacterial resistance and the fact that we're running out of time on the antibiotics we have. And that, you know, in around a decade, it's entirely possible every antibiotic will stop working. I worry about that. Mm -hmm. And I worry about drug-resistant tuberculosis. I mean, tuberculosis gets attention. Mm -hmm. But the antibiotic thing just doesn't seem to get any attention. And I have this UN Dispatch piece I keep promising to Mark Goldberg and not writing about antibiotics and how every time we see a drug-resistant form of a new disease, syphilis, gonorrhea, tuberculosis, we act like it's an isolated situation and it doesn't relate to anything else. Mm -hmm. What this actually means is the entire ecosystem of bacteria is shifting in a way that antibiotics can't fight them, and that's going to mean sooner or later every disease gets sucked into that. And I don't feel like anyone's writing about that in that way. They're just saying, like, oh, no, now syphilis isn't going to be curable, but that does not. How it works,
0: yeah yeah, I, I remember i I know uh Center for Global development, someone there's done some some really good research on that, but you're right, it's not a topic that gets a whole lot of uh, attention, so so yeah, I'll look forward to reading that from you and you're in dispatch, I guess what that's uh you know that's pretty much um most of the things I wanted to cover today. What's uh, what's next for you? Is the, are there any exciting projects um, or anything you've work, you're working on at the moment that we should um, we should look out for? Well,
1: as I said, there's you know four or five stories I promised UN Dispatch that I haven't written yet, and I will go back to blogging at UN Dispatch sometime soon. Um, I wrote a longer sort of elaboration on my TED piece for a British newspaper that I'm hoping will finish edits sometime soon, and that'll see the light of day. I'm still hoping maybe the TED people will ask me to write a second book, but really that consists of hoping the TED people will ask me that. There's no actual prospect on the horizon. Oh, let me take a moment and plug my book. <laughs> it's, it's called It's Perils. It's an ebook published by TED Books. You can get it on Amazon or iTunes or for the Nook. And it's very short and easy to read, so if you're interested in global health at all, you should read it. And it's only 2 99 so it's a good deal.
0: Yeah, no, it's I. I, I actually um, before the interview, I tried to download. I was having trouble downloading the full thing, but it was easy to, you know, get the sample. But for some reason, I don't know, I was doing it on iPad. It wasn't accepting my payment. Um, but uh, but it seems like an interesting read. Who who do you think the is the ideal audience uh, for that ebook?
1: There's actually sort of several different audiences I pictured when I was writing
0: it.
1: Mm. One of which is sort of undergraduates who think they might be interested in global health, and I'm sure. And then another is sort of people who are internationally focused people who are interested in international relations or international development but don't know anything about the health aspect. And then finally, okay, oh, and medical people who know a lot about health, like in the United States, and are interested in the larger context.
0: Great. All right. Well, hopefully uh, people in those categories will check it out. Thanks uh so much for your time. Uh I know you're juggling a lot of different things and obviously um you know just moved to a new place and yeah, I hope everything goes really well. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it was it was good to talk in person finally. Uh take care, Alana. Bye.
1: Okay.